uh, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to 2 Kings chapter 7, and if you would bookmark Acts chapter 1, we'll turn there in just a little while. We're going to do something a little different than our normal run of show this morning. Uh, rather than easing into our text for the day, um, I'd like to look at what I think is probably a pretty unfamiliar passage of Scripture, but one that might become one of your all-time favorites, maybe even in your top ten if you have that sort of thing. Uh, um, one day, I, I probably shouldn't do this, but maybe I'll do a message where um, we just talk about my top ten favorite passages or verses. That might take ten hours, so probably something we should give people a heads up ahead of time. Uh, but uh, uh, if you found your place in 2 Kings 7, um, I, I want to kind of set up things for you historically and contextually. Um, as you probably know, the Old Testament tells the story of God setting the stage for Jesus to come into the world. And that is primarily through the uh, frame and lens of the nation of Israel. And, and many of the stories, heroes and, and miracles of the Old Testament, preview who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. But this story is not one of those stories. Uh, this story um, features the nation of Israel at probably its darkest place and its most dire place in its short existence. Long gone are the glory days of David and Solomon. The nation had actually suffered division, great division, and was uh, caught up in a civil war and, and distress. And uh, if you know Israel's history, but maybe you don't, it all began with 12 tribes, 12 different tribes of Israel that uh, the idea was they would share in the power and the wealth and the influence and would equally, uh, you know, kind of rule the nation uh, with uh, different leaders, elders, tribal, and judges uh, that would kind of take turns steering the ship. Well, the people over time wanted to be like every other nation, and they demanded that God ordain them a king and, and give them a king. And, and though he warned them uh, of the consequences that that would bring, they wouldn't relent. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like every other nation. So he gave them a king, and one of the most glaring byproducts of that was that whichever tribe uh, that the king came from, suddenly that tribe, and obviously this would happen, suddenly that tribe became more favored and more important. So when David became the king, being from Judah, slowly but surely all the other tribes felt left out and overlooked. And it became clear that David was establishing a dynasty and cementing Judah as the royal tribe. So Judah would be the predominant tribe and the other 11 would kind of just fall in line. Uh, and, and under Solomon, David's son, the religious headquarters was moved to Jerusalem and to Judah. And um, so now all the power, all the money, all the focus would be on that single area, that single territory. And every other tribe, every other area was just an afterthought. And that meant all the other people were felt like an afterthought. So eventually, 10 of the tribes got together and said, you know what, we're not going to send our tax money to Judah anymore. We're not going to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship at the temple anymore. We're going to form our own government. We're going to kind of have our own system. We're going to retain the name Israel because there's 10 of us and two of them because Benjamin stayed with Judah because it was very small and kind of part of the same territory. But the 10 tribes said, you know what, we're the real Israel. They're just the, the ones that kind of took advantage of the whole system. And now David's tribe is the one and only important tribe. So we'll be Israel. They can be Judah. And, and we'll just exist separately. Um, and, and while they thought, and it sounded like a good idea, they would kind of do their own thing and Judah would do its own thing. Uh, the, the, the nation of Israel never organized a strong house of leadership. And they did not worship God like they should. And it did not take long before different 
warlords and militia groups rose up and plotted takeovers and different cults and other religions began to come across the borders. And a man named Omri led a coup against the very fragile Israeli government and established his own government and he built a new capital for Israel called Samaria. Now his son Ahab led the nation of Israel into full-blown idol, full idol worship and basically Ahab buried any remaining connection to Judah and worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. So years would pass, and Ahab's house grew more and more wicked. An entire generation was born and raised without any knowledge of Yahweh, without any awareness of the history of Israel and any um, connection to the Old Covenant. So then God raised up a prophet in Israel named Elijah. And Elijah would reveal the true story of Israel and would uh, bring a, or would raise up a remnant of people who would seek after the one true God. And, and Elijah had a protege named Elisha, and they began preaching against the wickedness of Israel and its leaders. They warned of judgment that would come uh, if they continued to forget its identity and ignore its history. And eventually, Elijah was no longer around, and Elisha was public enemy number one. And, but he continued to warn the nation that uh, it was in danger, that an enemy of the north, the nation of Syria, was planning an attack, and God was going to allow this to happen if they did not turn to him. So nobody listened. Uh, sure enough, Syria besieged the city, which is an ancient war practice where a greater kingdom would surround a smaller kingdom and basically choke out the city um, and would keep anybody from coming and going. They would uh, take off the water supply and, and basically they would lead the, lead, let the, leave the nation to a point where they would have to surrender if they wanted to survive. So food became scarce, um, exacerbated by a drought. Syria cut off the water supply and soon, because of how unsanitary things were and how unhygienic things were. Um, a, a pestilence broke out and the city was just at a totally depraved and dark place. People became very desperate if you read this part of the Old Testament. They began eating unclean animals. They even began eating each other. So the king at the time was totally in denial. He blamed Elisha as the root of all the problems, led a witch hunt against him, and refused to accept responsibility and lead the nation in prayer and pursuing God. And, and if this is interesting to you, which is really interesting to me, obviously, but if this is interesting to you, this is just another example of how awesome and rich the Bible is. Um, you, you should read it. It's full of drama and full of suspense, and it tells us what happens when we worship God. God and when we don't worship God. So you should read your Bibles if uh, you haven't lately. But in this instance, the nation is focusing on all the wrong things. Syria's siege around the city was leading people to believe uh, that there was no hope. And any day now, Syria would see that the city was beyond the ability to fight and they would seize the day and take it for themselves. But at this point, the story takes a remarkable, unexpected left turn. When the most unlikely group of characters choose to step out on faith and take the only chance left of them to see if they might be spared. So on that note, if you have your places, jump in with me at 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? 
If we say we'll enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. If we sit here, and we die also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. As in, what's the worst they can do to us? It's only going to happen. It's going to happen to us here, either way. So now, most everybody at this point is hunkered down in their homes. There was no normal. Everybody, no, there was no commerce, no commute going on. Um, there was this imminent invasion, this dire condition of the city. Everybody was, uh, you know, again, uh, bunkered into their homes. But these lepers, along with probably many other homeless and and, and unfortunate folks, uh, these lepers would have lived in the city gates or at the city gates, and uh, they would have most likely been beggars that would hope to receive some change or some food from people that were passing in and out. Uh, But they had a front row seat of what was going on outside the walls and what was going on and what was crumbling within the walls. So after days of not having any ways to dig through, after having no crumbs to pick up, uh, they realize they're at their last they're on their last rope. They are back against the wall. Um, they think to themselves, we've never been accepted here. We've never been cared for here. There's nobody here that actually looks to take care of us. We just pick up the pieces people drop. So why don't we go, and at least if we go before the Syrians, at least we have a chance of surviving, maybe even improving our situation. If they need spies, we can be spies. If they need surrender, we will surrender. But if, if they they know that we're not threats, maybe they'll accept us, and maybe they, that's our ticket to survive. And if we die there, we're probably going to die here. So why not take this leap of faith and see what awaits us in the Syrian camp? And that's where the story continues. Verse 5. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp. To their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites or the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, their donkeys, they fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered in another tent, carried some, some from there also and went and hid it and so forth. They reveled in the spoils all night long. Now, can you imagine what these four lepers must have thought? I mean, talk about hitting the jackpot after a lifetime of struggling. They literally, literally fell into their lap. And in verse 8, you can just see that they were enjoying and reveling in the spoils, scrambling to hoard it all away. And here they have horses and chariots available to them. They could take off and they could live whatever kind of life they wanted to live. These four men with, a, with an entire camp for the spoils, they would never be without, with their health condition, they had a short life to live anyway. So they were set to enjoy what was left of their days. But then... It begins to dawn on them as the sun began to rise. From the mouth of the most unlikely subjects comes one of the most powerful prophetic words in the entire Bible. And I believe their words continue to echo in the walls of every church all of these years later. Look at verse 9. 
And they said to one another, we are not doing right. Now, sidebar. What part of enjoying the spoils that you just walked into, what part of planning for your future, what part of taking all that was given to you for yourself, what part of that is wrong? Especially with these four lepers who had never been treated with kindness. They had never been treated with respect. They were treated as outcasts, as pariahs, as problems their entire lives. But it dawns on them. Men who had never been to the temple. They had never heard the word of God preached like you or I or any Jew would have heard. They had never been under or in the community of faith. Yet it dawns on them. We are not doing the right thing. This is a day of good news. And we remain silent. Do you see what's going on here? All of a sudden, instead of thinking about what they could enjoy from what they found, suddenly their entire mindset, their entire focus is we have acquired something that is bigger than us and too good to keep to ourselves. We are not doing the right thing. This is a day of good news. This is a day of glad tidings. And we sit here silent. But, but, but you're enjoying things. You're having a good time. Why do you, what, what's the point of telling somebody about it? Again, these lepers had no Bible verse telling them to do this or that. They had no preacher telling them to do this or that. No prophet speaking over them about what they should or shouldn't do. And yet it dawns on them. We are not doing the right thing. We cannot remain silent. They say if we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. What punishment? They felt as if they kept this to themselves. They would suffer for it. And again, nobody's telling them that. Nobody told them that would happen or that that could happen. They didn't have a preacher saying, you better or this might. This was all something internal. If we wait until morning, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Underline that phrase, highlight that phrase. Let us go and tell. Something came over these lepers, something they could not put their finger on, yet they could not ignore it. Deep down in their souls, they realized that they could not be silent about the splendor they were enjoying. Again, no one was telling them this. Something came over them and compelled them to go and tell and share not just the good news, but the good things they had found. At first, if you read the whole story, at first the royal household doubts that this is true or that these people are credible. But again, what did they have to lose at this point? Why would they even be telling them this if you know, they could all risk their lives at this point? So the royal household sends a team to inspect the camp. And down in verse 15, here's what happens. They went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. So the team of inspectors go and check out the camp. Then they go and they follow where the Syrians had ran away, and they find even more spoils and even more riches and even more supplies that were thrown off of their chariots and that they had you know, jettisoned as they were running away. 
Then the people went out and plundered the tent of the Syrians, so that a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel. And that's basically telling us that what was once scarce was now common, and what was what once was inflated was now cheap. So the famine was over. They had more supplies from the camp that would take care of the entire city. So no longer was there you know, supply constraints and worries about people surviving and starving and all that. They had more than they knew what to do with to feed the entire city. Now, this was the beginning of Israel bouncing back from famine and pestilence. People clearly began to realize that God had performed this miracle for them and provided for them. Um, and, and again, all because four peasants found and enjoyed relief. And in their joy and in their responsibility, that deep down they felt a responsibility they weren't just happy about it, but they felt something, a sense of responsibility, a sense of moral obligation. And they went and shared their secret with the whole city. Now, I imagine that there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of stories throughout history just like this, where the people found something that, they found that, that made their day and they didn't share it. And nobody remembers those stories because nobody was told about them, Right? Now, maybe, maybe, maybe I was wrong about this not being one of those stories that previews what Jesus came to do, because it seems like a pretty good preview, if you ask me. Have you ever been there before, though? So taken aback by how good something was, how great it made you feel, the joy it gave you, and the bliss you experienced. Have you ever just been at the point where you had to tell somebody? And nobody was telling you, you should tell someone. You just could not keep quiet about it. You had to tell somebody. You had to share it with somebody. You were even motivated to convince people to experience what you had a taste of. And maybe you'd say it was like those four lepers fell. It wasn't just out of your joy, but something told you the right thing to do was to share with others the good thing that you had found that had given you so much joy and so much hope. So we're just at the beginning of a brand new series, a very important series, called The Great Commission at Risen. And today, if you haven't already figured out, we're talking about sharing the gospel, about being a witness, about making disciples. And I felt like it was uh, the better way to introduce this subject was not trying to come up with some relevant way th that might appeal to you, but was just to read the Bible to you and show you this story that I think encapsulates the heart of this message. So often this subject gets preached in a way that leaves us all agreeing with the premise, feeling guilty because we don't go forward with it, but it rarely results in us choosing to take these things seriously. And this is why we spent a whole message and a half building up to this moment to hopefully make clear to us all that unless we are personally touched and inspired by the gospel, we probably won't ever be passionate about the Great Commission. Last week we discovered when we looked at a passage uh, where the Great Commission or originates from um, uh, that this is the secret ingredient that drove the first disciples and it can still drive us. Before they went out witnessing, they were found worshiping Jesus and that's what made them primed and positioned to obey the Great Commission. And we concluded and we affirmed that worship is the first essential, the essential first step in obeying the Great Commission because it grounds the Great Commission and our passion 
for God. As in worship, we are constantly reminded of what God has done, refreshed by what God has done, and we see what he can still do. And worship empowers us. It's a key word. Worship empowers us to be witnesses. Now, without power, and this is very clear, without power, we will never be effective witnesses. Now, if you would, turn over to Acts chapter 1 with me to a very familiar passage of Scripture compared to what we just read. Acts 1, uh, and I want you to hear an alternative version of the Great Commission that Jesus repeated a little while after he gave us the Scripture in Matthew 28. He repeats this just before he ascends back to heaven. So Acts chapter 1, we'll read down through verse number 8. The former account I made, O Theophilus, and this is Luke writing, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had commanded, given the commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after his sufferings of, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise from the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, and you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, or you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So again, similar to go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and seeing them come into the congregation of the church. He says, you shall be my witnesses when you receive my power. Now, a couple of things I want to highlight here for us. In verse number one, we see this phrase, began to do, began to do and teach. That Luke is saying, hey, I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do, but notice he specifically says began, and then he ends that sentence with a comma, not a period, as in this is just the beginning that the church is going to continue his work. But here's something very important. We don't just repeat what he said. We are going to repeat what he did, not the death, burial, and resurrection, but in terms of him witnessing to the power of God and the, power, and the kingdom of God, witnessing to those in the world and we'll talk about that in a little while but look down at verse 8 you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses so you're going to receive power to be witnesses and this is where we kind of tie this back in with worship worship is the key to being empowered and staying empowered and, and I don't mean attending a service that pumps you up and makes you feel good I don't mean a, an hour a week is going to be the key. I mean a lifestyle of worshiping God, a lifestyle of being in tune with what God has done for you and filling your mind and your emotions with what he is doing for you and what he wants to do in you. Worship is the key to being empowered and staying empowered because worship fills your heart with the Holy Spirit because your mind is filled with and refocused around the good news. And here's why I believe that this empowerment is something we have to choose to receive and we have to desire. 
this isn't, you know, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But this idea of being filled with is a renewal process. It's a decision you make every single day to tune into God and to submit to God and be filled with God rather than what the world offers you. Listen to this comparison Paul makes in Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, notice he makes a contrast there. Just as you have to fill your body with substances that aren't good for you, you have to intentionally go about, live a lifestyle and exercise in a way to fill your heart with the Spirit of God. Addressing one another, psalms and hymns and songs, singing and making melody to God with your heart. So worship is essential to being filled with the Spirit of God, being empowered with the things of God. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here, and what I believe Jesus is trying to tell us here, is that we have to take the proper steps in order to be filled with this power, in order to be positioned to be witnesses in our world. As we've talked about, worship is not just a vertical exercise. The Great Commission comes and guides us and directs us from here. As we internalize the gospel and rejoice around it, we realize that God has provided the same hope and help to everybody around us. And Jesus has commanded us to go and tell and share that with the world so as to continue the work that he began. Again, verse 1 says, Jesus began both to do this and to teach, and you're going to continue it. And I think the lepers said it best at the opening of our time. How can we? How can we keep such good news to ourselves? How can that which is so much bigger than ourselves become something we keep to ourselves? How? Well, hey, if you give me long enough, I'll tell you how. How can that which is so much bigger than us be something we keep? to just us. Especially when, especially when, when we get saved, when we come to Jesus, we step into his church, don't we? We step into his body, which is by very nature bigger than just me and you. It's everybody, right? The kingdom of God meant to be filled with everyone. I think that's an important, I think there's an important question though we've got to ask regarding fulfilling the Great Commission and our response to the Great Commission I think we've got to wrestle with a question or a couple of questions before we can move on, though. I feel like this is the elephant in the room that never gets asked, and ultimately ignoring it is why we never overcome it. So here it is. Here they are. Why don't don't you share the gospel with others? I mean, I can stand up here and tell you why you should all day long, but why don't you? Because you've, you've heard these sermons before, haven't you? You've heard these sermons once a year, twice a year. Every revival, somebody preaches this. Uh, you know, when you were in youth group, somebody preached this. When you were a young adult in Sunday school, you talked about this. And no matter what age you are, this comes up, doesn't it? Every year, twice a year, listen to the radio. Every other day, you'll hear a sermon about this, right? Somebody's preaching this all the time. We know that we should, yet we don't. Why don't we? And, and I think until we answer these questions... We're never going to overcome the reasons, excuses we make. So why don't you share the gospel with others? And I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to get you to answer it. God already knows, right? And he loves you anyway. So why don't you? 
why aren't you being a witness for Christ? And I know, I know, it's complicated. You know, sometimes we, we just don't think that we have the time, we're too busy, it's not the right time, it's not appropriate, you know, at work. I mean, I, I don't have that kind of relationship with them. You know, and, and yeah, you know, I, I should, but I don't. And you know, if you really were in my shoes, you know why I don't. Come on, we all have some good excuses, don't we? We don't find the time, we're not good at it. We tried once, didn't work out. We never find the appropriate moment. And all those are legitimate. All those are credible reasons slash excuses. But I really think they all stem from one thing. I think for years we've heard preachers tell us we ought to, we ought to, we ought to, but we've never been really primed and positioned to be able to. We've, been, we've, we've felt bad for not doing it, but we've never been enabled to do it. I hope that makes sense. Hopefully it makes you feel a little less guilty about the past, but more importantly, hopefully it entices you to be motivated about the future. So I pray that God can get us on the same page in these last few minutes and stir our hearts together around this matter because the Great Commission, here's the thing, the Great Commission has not gone anywhere and is not going anywhere. I don't know what you'll be judged for pertaining to your family, the job you've got, the family you've got, the things you've been able to do and not do. But every single one of us will stand before Jesus and we will be held accountable to how faithful we were in the Great Commission. Everybody. Not just preachers, teachers. All of us. I pray that we understand that we are under this imperative and we are under this commandment. And God already knows the reasons we make and the excuses we make, yet he still tells us to do it, which tells me he's going to help us do it, don't you think? Now, let's talk about what it means to be a witness in the most biblical sense. The word used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, there are two major connotations that come to mind that I want to focus on, and we're going we're to condense this down to two main points or two main words. The word witness, there's two things that come to mind. The word evidence and the word mindfulness. To be a witness suggests that there is ample evidence in us that will prove that we are worth listening to on the matter at hand. Does that make sense? The word witness means that we have enough evidence in us to communicate the message. And this is where I think it goes back to worship and back to our passion for God. Some of us, we've never got the power part down, so we'll never get the witness part down. Does that make sense? Some of us, I'm not trying to be mean, there's no evidence. And if there's no, I'm not trying to, I'm not saying you don't love God, you don't serve God, and don't try your best, but there's no evidence there. And if there's no evidence, there's no power. And there'll never be a witness. So here's what i got to say to you today. If you, if you think, well, you know, Justin, yeah, there really isn't. You know, I go to church, and I, I try to do my best, and I serve the Lord the best I can, but, you know, I guess there really isn't any evidence, and maybe that's why I'm not really a good witness. Here's my good news to you today. The Holy Spirit is actively working to immerse you in his presence and fill you with his power. So if you will admit that there's little to no evidence in you that would make you a good witness, the Holy Spirit is saying, please admit that and please listen to me. I am actively working to immerse you in my presence and fill you with my power. There is no deficiency on the Holy Spirit when it comes to this. 
He comes to you with Bible verses every day, songs every day, church services every week, love and support from other believers. He is making it easy for you to become passionate about Jesus and devoted to his kingdom. He makes it easy if you'll just open up. We've got to surrender to him and allow him to give us a heart full of worship and empower us with the gospel. See, some of you, it begins with your devotion routine. It, get into God's word. Pray. Surround yourself with people that will hold you accountable and support you and encourage you. Listen to godly music that wires your mind and emotions to the gospel and it's working your life. And I promise you, after 10 days of doing that, you will not want to go back to life before. I promise you, just take the 10-day challenge and I guarantee you won't want to listen to other stuff. You won't want to surround yourself with other stuff. You won't want to spend your time doing other stuff. I promise you, if you prioritize devoting yourself and surrendering yourself and being filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not miss anything else. Amen. Somebody, hopefully, will say that. And here's what will happen. I guarantee it. I guarantee this will happen. When there is ample evidence of Jesus within you, there will be an actual eagerness to be a witness for him. For him, When the evidence is building and when the evidence is growing and when you are walking closer to God, there will be an eagerness. There will be a giddiness. There will be a desire to be a witness for him. I guarantee this is, a, this is something that will always follow through. And this is where mindfulness comes in. Jesus' idea of being a witness is that we are mindful of those around us and compelled to share with them what we have come to know. Look over at Acts chapter 4. There's a verse down in verse 20. The disciples are on trial for witnessing too much. There's too much evidence of Jesus in them. So the courts that killed Jesus are trying to kill them and listen to their reason for why they cannot stop being a witness. Verse 20 of chapter 4. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot help it. We are too mindful of what is at hand. Of who is at hand. Again, we began this chapter, begin Acts, by talking about what Jesus began to do and how we're going to continue it. Think about Jesus' ministry. He spent his days engaging with and making connections with real people, real concerns, with real needs. He built relationships with people. I know we often think of Jesus as preaching to the crowds, but the majority of the records we have about Jesus are much more personal than that. Think about the episodes of the Gospels. He steps into someone's life, a mother or a father desperate for help with their child, a single person trying to pick up the pieces of their past, a religious leader burnt out, wasting their time. Think about the household names we have because of his time on earth. Of the 12 disciples, of course, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Nicodemus, Jairus, Simon, and many, many, many unnamed men and women who were impacted by Jesus. When Jesus witnessed, it wasn't random, scattered, or impersonal. It was the overflow of his heart towards somebody. It was relational. That's what we must remember when we consider what it means to make disciples and be a witness for Christ. Often we think about witnessing as just spitting out truth and, and, and trying to get people to listen to us. That's not witnessing. That's just 
screaming, talking to somebody that might listen. Maybe this is why you've been turned off by the idea, but I think it's easy to convince somebody to try this method. When I was in high school, this is what I thought it was. I would just walk up to people and say, hey, the Bible says this, and nobody listened to me, and I know why they didn't, and I'm glad they didn't. Because that's not witnessing. That's just bragging about what you know and hoping somebody will pay attention to you. But I understand sometimes the intention is there, but it's not witnessing. Listen, a lot of times when we're at a distance, witnessing is easy. Because it's not intentional, it's not directed, it's just scattering seed to the wind. And if that's how you thought witnessing is, let me just tell you, let me ask you a question. Why would you scatter when you can plant? If you've ever had a garden before, how good does it, how good does, does it, what good does it do if you just scatter seed into the air? Yeah, there might be a sprout here and there, but when you plant it, something's going to come up. And it takes time, tending to, caring for, cultivating, all that. See, planting requires a personal, intentional approach. It calls for delicacy. It calls for grace. It calls for kindness and sacrifice. Uh, We all know, don't we? But that's what Jesus is famous for. He didn't make punchy, witty, truthful points. He wasn't a politician, thank God. He didn't witness via social media just to get the likes and the shares. He was intentional. He was personal. He made effective, endearing, gracious differences by walking alongside people day after day. So do you want to make a difference? Or do you, and do you want to be an actual witness? And, and I think all of us want to be. I think all of us, if we've surrendered to the Holy Spirit and allowed Him to make a difference in our life, as you hear others around you hurting and having questions and with needs, you are mindful and you grow in your mindfulness and you are compelled to do something to share with them what you know. So in closing, I want us to be sensitive to what I think the Holy Spirit is doing right now. He's tugging at our hearts to take a leap of faith. And I think he wants us to begin prioritizing the Great Commission, begin praying that God make us witnesses for the good news that we've come to know and rely on. And if you are willing to take the leap, I'd like to use that word leap and give you four things to remember as you begin to be mindful towards those around you who might need what you've come to know. So when you say that word leap, think love, engage, answer, and pour. So the first thing is love. Everybody you are ever in contact with, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, whether they're somebody you could witness to or not, this needs to be the basis for all of us. Friends, family, enemies, neighbors, co-workers, just start loving people every day that God puts in your path. Just start loving people. This is bigger than the Great Commission even. This is the Great Commandment. God has called us to love everyone because he has loved us. And if his love is in us, his love will go through us. I could give you a hundred Bible verses from Peter and Paul, James, John, and Jesus on this. But the short of it is, if we are followers of Jesus, we should be known for our love, unconditional kindness, and compassion. And let me say this as boldly as I can. We will never, 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 never be witnesses for Jesus if we do not love people. So don't even try. (laughs) Just to be nice. Don't even try if you're not full of love. If you can't love that person, don't try to witness to them because it's not going to work. Start loving them, then you'll be able. But don't do it without the love. And you better have the love if you follow Jesus. So you may spout Bible verses at people, but you'll never make a difference. You'll actually hurt people more than you'll help people. 
Jesus said they'll know you by your love for them. John said if you don't have love, you don't know God. Paul said you can perform signs and wonders, but if you don't love them, you're wasting your time. So start loving people. And if you can get through that step, hopefully, the next step is engage with people. Listen to people. Form relationship with people. And as you begin to form relationships, I want you to listen to f- for certain things. Listen for some knots. When somebody says, you know what, things aren't going well for me. Things are not going the way I wanted them to go. And you know what, I'm not prepared for this. This is my marriage, my family, I'm not prepared for it. And maybe you hear them say, you know what, I'm not in church. I don't, I don't have a relationship with God like I should or I used to. When you hear them express these knots, listen to them, engage with them, love them, and use your experience to show them that God loves them and that God can help them in whatever they're going through. And that's where the next two steps come in. Answer. Answer with how you came to know Jesus and what he's done for you. So you love them, you engage with them, and you answer, this is what God has done for me, and this is what he can do for you. And even if they respond or not, you pour yourself into them with intentional grace and kindness. Continue to pour your life into theirs. Rinse and repeat. Chances are, chances are, This is how you came to Jesus. Someone took the leap for your sakes. Your parents, grandparents, your pastor, your mentor, your friend, your coworker, your classmate, your neighbor. Somebody loved you and engaged with you, answered your questions, and poured into your life. What would it look like? What would it look like if you took this leap and began praying for God to make you a witness for him? I think the world of those, I think the words of those lepers rings louder than ever. What we are doing is not right. We can't keep it to ourselves. That's what drove the disciples, even when they were threatened again, they prayed God make them bold that they might never stop taking the leap. So who here today, and all of us are under this commandment, so I think all of us are being talked to by God right now, Who here would be willing to surrender to God on this matter? That your life might be filled with evidence? Maybe you're right there at the top of it. You know what? There's just not no evidence in me, and no wonder I'm not a witness because I don't really have the evidence. And you know what? Maybe I should start taking things more seriously. And, And I guarantee you, as you begin to build that evidence, you will begin to grow in your eagerness. Who would be willing to surrender to God and say, God, give me mindfulness? that I might take the leap, that I might love people, that I might engage with them and listen to them and answer them the way you've answered me, and that I might pour into them. Listen, you're not going to win somebody to Jesus in five minutes. Somebody might have told you that before, but that's not how it works. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how the disciples did it. That's not how the church should do it. You're not going to win somebody to Christ by just lecturing them and lording over them with what you know and they don't know. You win somebody to Jesus by loving them by engaging with them, by answering their sincere questions, by pouring into their life like somebody poured into your life. So who here today would be willing to say, you know what, the Great Commission is not going anywhere, and I'm tired of running. 
I want God to fill my heart with his spirit. I want him to give me a heart of evidence, a mindfulness that I might take the leap. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that just compels us to take this great commission seriously. There's a world full of hurting people, lost people, needing people that are waiting for somebody to come their way like Jesus did, that woman at the well, like Jesus did, that woman with the issue of blood, like Jesus did, Nicodemus and Jairus and all the disciples. The world is waiting to hear some good news, but it begins when disciples begin to go into the world with an ambition to love and engage and answer and pour. Lord, would you search the hearts of the people today and if there's somebody that would confess there's just not evidence in me that would make me a good witness would you help them begin to build that evidence would you help them begin following you closely and loving you sincerely and growing as a disciple and would you make us all mindful of those around us that need to be loved that need to be engaged with that need to be heard Lord would you give us all the courage to boldly take that leap and begin taking the Great Commission seriously? Because thankfully somebody took it seriously regarding us. And thank God they did. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.